the Epistle to the Galatians. Introduction Paul's letter to the Galatians was addressed to a group of churches in Galatia, a region of present-day Turkey. Paul had preached the gospel in these churches. He wrote to counter those who taught that Christians must be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. Paul began with a defense of his apostolic authority, chapters 1-2, then made it clear that all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, enjoy complete salvation in Christ, chapters 3-4. In chapters 5-6 Paul showed how the gospel of grace leads to true freedom and godly living. Perhaps the central message of Galatians is that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ, 2 verse 16. Paul wrote this letter sometime between AD 48 and 55. I. Unique Place in the Canon A large percentage of English-speaking peoples, as well as many French people, are of Celtic origin, that is, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, or Breton. These ethnic groups especially will be fascinated to know that one of Paul's earliest letters was written to their ancestors, Galatia, Celt, and Gaul are all related words. About 278 BC a large number of these European Gauls migrated to what is today Turkey. Their boundaries became fixed and their state was named Galatia. Many people think they can see Celtic traits in such things as the changeableness of the Galatians, in Acts 13 and Galatians 3 verse 1 e.g. Be that as it may, the epistle to the Galatians fulfills a crucial role in early Christianity. Though often seen as a first draft of Romans, since it covers the gospel of grace, Abraham, the law, etc., in a similar manner, Galatians is a stern, impassioned effort to save Christianity from becoming just a messianic sect of legalistic Judaism. How the Galatians themselves reacted we do not know, but the gospel of grace, apart from the works of the law, did triumph, and Christianity went on to become a global faith. During the Reformation, Galatians became so important to Luther that he referred to the book as My Keith, his affectionate name for his wife. His commentary on Galatians influenced not merely scholars, but the common folk and is still in print and studied. 2. Authorship The genuineness of Galatians as a Pauline epistle has never seriously been in question. It is quoted as Paul's by Polycarp, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Origen, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Clement of Alexandria. It is listed in the Muratorian canon as Paul's and, probably due to its strong anti-Judaizing language, receives first place in Martian's Apostolicon. The external evidence is thus very strong. The internal evidence for Paul's authorship starts with the personal references in 1 verse 1 and 5 verse 2 and the remark near the end, 6 verse 11, that he wrote it in large letters. This is widely taken to refer to a possible eye disease of the Apostle. Supporting evidence includes the fact that the Galatians once would have been willing to pluck their eyes out for Paul. Many historical notes dovetail with Acts. The dispute over circumcision and whether Paul was a real Apostle were flaming issues in the 50s and 60s but dead issues soon afterward. 3. Date the date of the epistle depends on the precise meaning of the expressions the churches of Galatia and Galatians. If it refers to the southern part of Asia Minor, an earlier date, even before the Jerusalem Council, is likely. If the northern part is meant, a later date is called for. Geographically, the term Galatia was used for the north and politically it was used for the south, the Roman province of Galatia. The North Galatian theory was standard until the 1800s and is largely held by German scholars still. There is no evidence that Paul ever ministered to the Galatians of that area, 
but this certainly does not rule it out. Especially since Sir William Ramsay made it popular, the South Galatian theory has been widely held in Great Britain and North America. Since Luke gives much space and acts to Paul's missionary work in this area, Antioch in Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb, it would seem likely that the apostle would have written to his converts there. Since Paul evangelized southern Galatia on his first missionary journey and revisited it on his second, an early date is possible for Galatians. If the letter was penned before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, AD 49, this would explain why the question of circumcision was still a very live issue. Theodor Zahn, a leading conservative German scholar, dates Galatians during Paul's second missionary journey from Corinth. This would make it his very earliest epistle. If the northern theory is correct, Galatians was probably written in the 50s, perhaps as early as 53, but probably later. If, as we believe, the southern theory is correct, and especially if Galatians was written before Paul attended the Jerusalem Council, which decided the issue of circumcision for Gentile Christians, the book can be dated A.D. 48. 4. Background and Theme During his early missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul visited Asia Minor, preaching the glorious message that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Many of his hearers were saved, and churches were formed, several of them in Galatia. The inhabitants of Galatia were known to be restless, warlike, and changeable. After Paul had left this area, false teachers entered the churches and introduced wrong doctrine. They taught that salvation was by faith in Christ plus keeping the law. Their message was a mixture of Christianity and Judaism, of grace and law, of Christ and Moses. They also tried to turn the Galatians away from Paul by saying he was not a genuine apostle of the Lord and, therefore, his message was not reliable. They sought to destroy confidence in the message by undermining confidence in the messenger. Many of the Galatian Christians were affected by their evil suggestions. What sorrow and disappointment must have filled Paul's heart when such news from Galatia reached him? Had his labors among these people been in vain? Could the Christians still be rescued from these Judaistic, legalistic teachings? Paul was stirred to swift and decisive action. He took up his pen and wrote this indignant letter to his beloved children in the faith. In it, he sets forth the true character of salvation as being given by grace from beginning to end, not earned by law-keeping either in whole or in part. Good works are not a condition of salvation, but a fruit of it. The Christian has died to the law, he leads a life of holiness, not by his own efforts, but by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The Letter of Paul to the Galatians Chapter 1 Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Galatians Chapter 1 Commentary Ike Personal, Paul Defends His Authority, Chapters 1, 2 Of Paul's Purpose in Writing, 1 verses 1 to 10 1 verse 1, at the outset, Paul insists that his call as an apostle was divine. It did not originate with men, nor was it communicated from God through some man. It came directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. A man who is thus called by God alone and is responsible to God alone has freedom to preach God's message without fear of man. So the apostle was independent of the twelve apostles and of everybody else, both as to his message and his ministry. In this verse, the deity of Christ is both stated and implied. It is stated in the expression nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. It is implied by the way in which Paul links together Jesus Christ and God the Father, putting them on equality with one another. Then God the Father is mentioned as the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul had good reason to remind the Galatians of this. The resurrection was proof of God's complete satisfaction with the work of Christ for our salvation. Apparently, the Galatians were not wholly satisfied with the Savior's work, because they were trying to improve on it by adding their own efforts at law-keeping. Paul was called by the risen Christ, in contrast to the twelve apostles, who were called by the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. Ever afterward, the resurrection formed an important part of his message. 1 verse 2, the apostle associates himself with all the brethren who were with him. These brethren joined in appealing to the Galatians to hold on to the truth of the gospel. This letter to the churches of Galatia shows a deliberate lack of warmth. 
Ordinarily Paul addressed believers as the Church of God, saints, or the faithful in Christ Jesus. He often expressed thanks for the Christians, or praise for their virtues. Frequently, he mentioned individuals by name. But there is none of that here. The seriousness of the error in the Galatian churches caused him to be stern and cool toward them. 1 verse 3, Grace and Peace are two of the great words of the Gospel. Grace is God's undeserved kindness toward ungodly sinners. Instead of asking man to do, it tells what God has done and invites men to receive salvation as a free gift. Schofield says, instead of looking for good men whom it may approve, grace is looking for condemned, guilty, speechless, and helpless men whom it may save, sanctify, and glorify. Peace is the result of grace. When a sinner receives the Savior, he has peace with God. He rests in the knowledge that the penalty for his sins has been paid, that all his sins have been forgiven, and that he will never be condemned. But grace not only saves, it keeps as well. And we need not only the blessing of peace with God, but the peace of God also. These are the blessings which Paul wishes for the Galatians as he opens his letter. Surely the Galatians realized that these blessings could never come by the law. The law brought a curse on all who broke its precepts. It never brought peace to a single soul. 1 verse 4, Paul next reminds his readers of the tremendous cost of their salvation. Note the words, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. If he gave himself to settle the sin question, then it is both unnecessary and impossible for us to add to such a work, or to help atone for our sins by law-keeping. Christ is the sole and sufficient Savior. Christ died to deliver us from this present evil age. This includes not only the moral and political corruption of this age, but also the religious world which mixes rituals and ceremonies with faith in Christ. It was especially timely, therefore, for the Galatians to be reminded that they were going back into the very system from which Christ had died to rescue them. Christ's redemption was according to the will of our God and Father. This places the credit where it belongs not in man's puny efforts, but rather in the sovereign will of God. It emphasizes that Christ is God's way of salvation and that there is no other. Verse 4 should be a reminder that God is not interested in improving the world or making men comfortable in it, but in delivering men from it. Our priorities should coincide with His. 1 verse 5, according to the gospel of grace, all the glory for man's salvation goes to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Man cannot share this glory as a co-savior by keeping the law. Each phrase in these five verses is meaningful, much truth being expressed in a few words. Paul has stated in embryo the two main subjects which will occupy the rest of the epistle, his own authority as an apostle and his gospel of the grace of God. He is now ready to speak directly to the Galatians concerning the problem at hand. 1 verses 6, 7, Paul confronts the Galatians at once on their readiness to accept error. He is amazed that they should so suddenly surrender the truth of the gospel, and he solemnly labels their action as deserting God for a false gospel. God had called them into the grace of Christ, now they were putting themselves under the curse of the law. They had accepted the true gospel, now they were abandoning it for a different gospel which was not good news at all. It was just a perverted message, a mixture of grace and law. 1 verses 8, 9, Paul twice pronounces the solemn curse of God on anyone who preaches any other gospel. God has only one message for doomed sinners, he offers salvation by grace through faith entirely apart from law-keeping. 
those who proclaim any other way of salvation must necessarily be doomed. How very serious it is to preach a message that results in the eternal destruction of souls. Paul was not tolerant of such false teachers and neither should we be. John Stott warns. We are not to be dazzled, as many people are, by the person, gifts or office of teachers in the church. They may come to us with great dignity, authority, and scholarship. They may be bishops or archbishops, university professors, or even the Pope himself. But if they bring a gospel other than the gospel preached by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament, they are to be rejected. We judge them by the gospel, we do not judge the gospel by them. As Dr. Alan Cole expresses it, the outward person of the messenger does not validate his message, rather, the nature of the message validates the messenger. Notice that the apostle says an angel from heaven, not an angel from God. An angel from heaven could conceivably bring a false message, but an angel from God could not. Language could not express more clearly the uniqueness of the gospel. It is the only way of salvation. Self-effort or human merit have no part. The gospel alone offers salvation without money or price. Whereas the law has a curse for those who fail to keep it, the gospel has a curse for those who seek to change it. 1 verse 10, Paul is probably reminded at this point that his enemies accused him of changing the message to suit his audience, so he asks, in effect, in insisting that there is only one gospel, am I trying to please men, or God? Obviously he is not trying to please men, because they hate the suggestion that there is only one way to heaven. If Paul changed his message to suit men, he would not be a bondservant of Christ, in fact, he would be inviting the wrath of God to fall upon himself. Be Paul's defense of his message in ministry, 111 to 210. 1 verses 11, 12, the apostle now presents six arguments in defense of his message and ministry. First, the gospel was received by divine revelation and independently of man. It was not according to man in the sense that man did not originate it. A moment's reflection will confirm this. Paul's gospel makes everything of God and nothing of man. This is not the kind of salvation that men would devise. Paul neither received it from some other person nor was he taught it through books. It came to him by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. 1 verses 13, 14, Secondly, Paul's failure to include Jewish law in his gospel could not be laid to any ignorance of Judaism on his part. By birth and training, he was steeped in the law. By personal choice, he became a notorious persecutor of the church. In passionate zeal for the traditions of his fathers, he surpassed many other Jews of his own age. Therefore, his gospel of salvation by faith apart from the law could certainly not be attributed to any ignorance of the law. Why then did he omit it from his preaching? Why did his gospel run counter to his background, his natural inclinations, and his whole religious development? Simply because it was not the result of his own thinking, but was given to him directly by God. 1 verses 15 to 17, thirdly, the first few years of his ministry were carried on independently of the other apostles. Paul now demonstrates his independence of other men in connection with his gospel. After his conversion, he did not immediately confer with human leaders, nor did he go up to Jerusalem where the other apostles were. Instead, he went to Arabia, then returned again to Damascus. 
His determination to avoid Jerusalem was not out of disrespect for his fellow apostles, it was rather because he had been commissioned by the risen Lord himself and given a unique ministry to the Gentiles, 2 verse 8. Hence his gospel and his service needed no human authorization. He was independent of man altogether. Several expressions in these verses deserve careful consideration. Note the expression in verse 15, God separated me from my mother's womb. Paul realized that even before his birth, he had been set apart by God for a special work. He adds that God called me through his grace, referring to his conversion on the road to Damascus. If he had received what he deserved at that moment, he would have been cast into hell. But Christ, in wonderful grace, saved him and sent him out to preach the faith he had sought to destroy. In verse 16, he shows that God intended to reveal his Son in him. This gives us a wonderful view of God's purpose in calling us to reveal his Son in us, so that we may represent the Lord Jesus to the world. He reveals Christ to our hearts, verse 16, in order that he may display Christ through us, verses 16 to 23, in order that God may be glorified in this display, verse 24. Paul's special assignment was to preach Christ among the Gentiles. In verse 17 he says, I went to Arabia. Every servant of the Lord needs a time of seclusion and meditation. Moses had his forty years on the backside of the desert. David was alone with God while he tended sheep on the hillsides of Judea. 1 verses 18 to 20 Fourthly, when Paul finally visited Jerusalem, he met only Peter and James. Apart from that, he was relatively unknown to the churches in Judea, 1 verses 21 to 24. To demonstrate further his independence of the other apostles, Paul recounts that he did not visit Jerusalem until at least three years after his conversion. He went up to make the acquaintance of Peter a personal, not an official visit, Acts 9 verses 26-29. While there, he also met James, the Lord's brother. His stay with Peter lasted only 15 days, scarcely long enough for a training course. Moreover, the text indicates he was on perfect equality with these servants of the Lord. 1 verses 21-24, After that, he spent much of his time in the regions of Syria and Cilicia, so much so that the churches of Judea did not know him personally. All they knew was that this one who had treated the Christians so cruelly was now a Christian himself and was preaching Christ to others. Because of this they glorified God for what he had done in the life of Paul. Do others glorify God because of the change in our lives?